The United States men's basketball team was approaching the 2008 Beijing Olympics with their tails tucked between their legs. In 2004, the U.S. men's basketball team, composed of the greatest players in the entire world, had left the Olympics with only a bronze. And this was an abject humu humiliation because truly the rest of the world has for decades been looking up to the United States. Even probably non-basketball fans among us may have heard of the dream team and the, the dominance that America had had in the game that America had invented, the game of basketball. Well, despite there being the greatest players in the world on this 2004 team, they had a comparatively really poor showing. And it was decided by the organization, the powers that be, they needed to go another direction in, as a coach. And so they hired a guy who had another job, a college coach, a guy named Mike Krzyzewski, the coach of the Duke University Blue Devils, regarded as maybe the greatest college basketball coach of all time. And he was tasked with coming in and restoring the glory of USA men's basketball. Now, there was real doubt about how this would work. He was a college coach. He was used to yelling at college kids and motivating college kids who had not yet received the full entitlement that multi-million dollar salaries and very comfortable living arrangements had, had uh, created for, men, for, for professional players. And so there was wonder, is this going to work? Can this college coach used to dealing with 18 to 20-year-olds come in and deal with fully grown men who are way richer than he is and way more well-known than he is and, and uh, truly who are the ones who are going to be uh, uh, carrying out his directives? Well, Coach Kane knew that. And what he did was very, very interesting. In order to gain their attention and their trust, he had a very unique way of going about it. He did things like this. He brought in an army officer and a soldier who had lost both eyes in combat to talk to these extremely pampered multimillionaire athletes who had been told that they were God's gift to green earth for decades. And they heard what it was like to sacrifice and lose something for your country. He took them to Arlington National Cemetery, where one of the players, it's recounted, said it was an experience he will never, ever forget, going and looking at the graves of people younger than them and those who had died for that country that USA would be emblazoned across these players' chests. He had Olympic gold medals hanging all over the facility so that they would begin to see and experience what it would be to win one of those gold medals for their country. In fact, it's even said that he played for them a rendition of the national anthem one of the most well-known, Marvin Gaye, the very famous R&B singer, his rendition of the national anthem, so they would be looking forward to hearing that played after they won their gold medal. And the end result of it was every single one of them would testify that absolutely gripped the concentration of these multi-million dollar athletes. They began to realize that 
representing the United States was not something that was a privilege to the United States. Like, ooh, we have LeBron James playing on our team. It was a privilege to LeBron James to wear the USA across his chest. In other words, the name across the front of the chest was way more important than the names on the back of the chest. And the, the USA, guarded by that same mentality, had these superstar players agreeing to take very selfless, humble roles on the team, to put aside their own ego and their pride. Why? Because their thinking had been changed. They had realized something about who they were on the United States of America team, and they went and carried that out in the way they acted. Now, I'm telling you something that is true universally across human beings, that the way you behave is directed by what you believe, that what you believe drives and directs and shapes how you behave. Or to put it another way, your identity, how you view yourself and how you view your surroundings will direct how you act. And once you understand this truth, you're going to see that it applies equally to our spiritual lives. It applies to the way we behave in terms of our walk with Christ. What you believe and what you know about yourself is going to absolutely make an immeasurably important role in how you act. You know, I have seen this in the same way having children. How often do we as parents with young children who are crying and are emotional and are having a hard time, they woke up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning, we feel tempted to say to them, snap out of it, stop crying, stop whining, stop fighting. And what happens? Keeps on going. And we can try to bring corrective action and corrective discipline. Do you know what, what we found, and I'm sure you found as parents, do you know how immeasurably change or, or impactful it is to simply change the way they think? You say simply change the way you think. What, what does that mean? Well, I've seen it. If you have a child who's being selfish and focused only on themselves and their own needs, if you are able to change how that child is looking at now meeting someone else's needs in the family, do you know their behavior is going to change immediately with it? I've seen that over and over with our kids where it'll be something where they are so wrapped up in themselves and so wrapped up in their own way and their own thinking and suddenly if you can direct the way they're thinking in a different way, suddenly you don't need to tell them to change their behavior. Their behavior will change. They just needed to see life differently. And that's not even true just for kids. It's, it's for us who are grown-up kids. How oftentimes do we find ourselves in a really just bad mood, really grumpy, really just looking at life through kind of dark-tinted sunglasses, and suddenly someone says one word, or we read one verse in the Bible, or there's one thing that comes into our life, and suddenly it's like the dark-tinted sunglasses come off, we see things completely differently, and we say, oh, well that changes how I was looking at things. And I'm simply driving at this point there is a kind of Christianity that is only focused on do this and don't do that. 
And let me be clear, there is an important part of our Christian life that's do this and don't do that. But I'm talking about the kind of idea that doesn't recognize that ultimately your spiritual life is rooted in what you think and how you identify and what you perceive about who you are and about who Christ is. We see in our modern church today so much of a push on preaching messages that are practical. You need to have practical messages that people can take home and apply. I don't, I don't, I'm not opposed to practical messages. But you know, you need to understand where the practical message is coming from. And where you need to see the practical message coming from is exactly from where we open to tonight in Colossians chapter 3. Because as I've already said, when we gather together this week at Camp Shatek and study the Bible together, we're going to be studying one of the most practical passages in all the Bible. It is filled with do this and don't do that. Just notice some of them here. If you have your Bibles with us open to Colossians chapter 3, he says things in verse 5 like mortify or literally put to death your members which are upon the earth. Verse 8, he says, put off all these. Verse 10, he says, you have put on the new man. Therefore, he says in verse 12, put on, therefore, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. He says, to forbear one another, to, to forgive one another, to put on charity, to let the peace of God rule in your hearts, be to be thankful, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. On and on and again, he's telling us how practically to live but you're not really going to understand Colossians 3 and Colossians 4 until you re realize Coloss what Colossians 3, 1a is. I joked with Nick tonight that really all he needed to read tonight is Colossians 3, 1a, if ye then be risen with Christ, and then sit down. Because that's as far as we're getting tonight. If you then be risen with Christ. Do you know everything that Paul is talking about for the rest of this chapter and a little more that we'll be studying at Chatek flows from that phrase, if you then be risen with Christ. It makes me think this, friends, what does it mean to be risen with Christ? If you then are risen with Christ, then here's everything practical about the way you should live that flows from that. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a really high-level overview of the, of the book of Colossians to try to understand this question. What does it mean to be risen with Christ? And I hope that in doing so, you will leave here this evening a little bit more secure in your identity in Christ and that you will be prepared with a foundation to think through this week together as a church how that applies to our day-to-day -day living. The title of the message this evening is simply Risen with Christ. Risen with Christ. Each one of those words has a powerful meaning independently. Risen with Christ. We're going to look at three aspects of this idea tonight. First of all, I'm going to call it the reality. The reality of our spiritual lives. We need to step back for just a minute and talk about the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians was written to a church in a city called 
Colossae. It is in modern-day Turkey. What's interesting about the book of Colossians and this church at Colossae is that Paul had never met them before. Now, most of the books of the Bible or of Paul's epistles, he's writing to people that he knew or churches that he founded. Not this one. He's actually never spoken with them before. What apparently happened is they had been evangelized in the spread of the gospel probably only a short period of time before this, perhaps by a man named Epaphras. And now Epaphras comes to Paul sometime in the early 60s A.D. And he tells them about a problem that is, that is plaguing the church at Colossae. Now, you need to understand this as well about our New Testament epistles. It's kind of like listening to only one half of a phone conversation. Did you ever do that? Have you ever done that at times? Your spouse or your mom or your dad is talking on the phone and you can only hear their side of the phone call. So you can't know exactly what the other party is saying. It's kind of like that. But you know when you're listening to one half of the phone call, you can still kind of get an idea of what's going on, right? You can kind of pick up on the clues. And we can pick up on the clues of what was going on in Colossae based on what we see Paul teaching them about. Here's one thing it looks like was going on in Colossae. They were being invaded by what would be called syncretism. Now, I don't know if you've heard that word before. Syncretism is when two religions kind of mold into one. It's kind of, you find that in, in areas culturally across our world where there's been a melting pot of people and of different groups. And over time, the, the religion just kind of borrows different pieces from the religions that are around it. I, I, this is an aside, but America is absolutely a syncretistic world. Absolutely. If you were to look at kind of our national religion right now, what has been called therapeutic moral deism, is kind of the idea that it should make you feel good. It's therapeutic. It's moral so that it should just kind of try to help you be a better person. And it's deism. It's just this kind of idea that God's floating around out there that if you feel him, then, all, then that's great. Well, where are we drawing that from? You're drawing that from a syncretism of some aspects of Christianity, some aspects of Buddhism, some aspects of Judaism. Or you're just kind of all blending together. That's frankly our national religion today. Well, here in Colossae, it appears that there had been a melding of some Jewish elements, a kind of legalism, You'll see in, Col in, in, Col in Colossians here, Paul says, don't give yourselves into these ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, these kind of Jewish style of things, but also a kind of pagan syncretism. This kind of, it appears that they were being encouraged to worship angels, to have perhaps visions that they were coming into and, and making a part of their spiritual walk together. This idea that there was this, this, Jewish legalism of ascetism kind of really being harsh on your physical body, along with, whoa, uh, along with this kind of paganism, mysticism. And it was this meld. And so what Paul is bringing out in the book of Colossians, the central theme of the, of the book of Colossians, above all, is the absolutely all-encompassing Christ. He's telling them, you don't need any of this. You don't need the Jewish legalism. You don't need the mystical paganism. 
You don't need the kind of worship of angels. You don't need any of that. All you need is what? Or more accurately, whom? All you need is Christ. As he says, you are complete in him. So let's just start digging in right into chapter 1 to understand the reality that Paul is trying to communicate to them about who Christ is. Will you notice with me, if you just look back to chapter 1, and again, we're just going to take a very, very high-level scan uh, at kind of a 50,000-foot view. Look at what Paul describes Jesus as in chapter 1 in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he said that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. The image of the invisible God. Now here's something that comes to mind for me. Have you ever seen a seal, like a government seal, that is stamped on a document? What's very interesting is that whenever you have a seal, you have no representation of that seal. The seal, you know, is on the underside of the thing that's stamping it down. There's no representation of it until what? Until it's imprinted in paper. And then you see the seal. Not because you see the seal itself, but because you see the imprint it left. And now you say, oh, there's the seal that I had never seen before. Think about that with what Paul is saying here. There is an invisible God that you've never seen, and that I've never seen. No man has seen him at any time, Jesus says. So what does Paul mean when he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God? He's the stamp of God on what? On what? A human body? Jesus is the stamp, the perfect representation of God in a human form who being in the form of God, Philippians 2 says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion, in fashion as a man. What? Stamped upon with the image of God. So he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9 says not only is he the image of the invisible God, that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Friend, can you even imagine what the fullness of God is? Have you been reading with us through the book of Psalms this summer and seeing all these incredible poetic language about God appearing on the scene and the heavens trembling and the earth shaking and the cedars of Lebanon uh, 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 crying out. I mean, this, all this poetic language about the greatness of who God is, the absolute incomprehensibility. God, how do we even think about what his fullness is? The one who speaks and things just happen. Now imagine that all that fullness is poured into a human body. Every bit of it contained in one body. And you have Jesus. In him dwells all the fullness of God bodily. It's staggering to think of that kind of authority that Jesus was given in the very person of Jesus Christ. But notice also what Paul then wants to tell us about his power. Will you look with me again at Colossians 1 and look at verse 16. For by him, that's by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible, 
and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Paul seems to have in mind here not just physical beings, but spiritual beings. All of the spiritual demonic forces that, uh, that ally themselves against the work of God in the world. In reality, Paul says, Jesus created them. They were by him. Now notice not just that. All things were created by him and for him. Why were you created? Well, you were created by him. You were created for him. Have you stopped to think about what that really means? That you were created for Jesus? You say, what about those who reject him and will have no time for him? Oh, they were created for him too. They were created to glorify his power and authority even in the destruction of those who don't believe. Friends, that is scriptural. Everyone was created for him. Notice verse 17. And he is before all things. So he precedes all things. And by him all things consist. Literally, that means they hold together. Do you know the law of gravity is not ultimately what holds our world together? It is the power of Jesus Christ himself. If Jesus Christ were to withdraw his perpetuating hand from the world today, the stars would begin to fall and go out of orbit. Everything would utterly begin to break down all around us because by him all things consist, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now notice this, that in all things he might have the preeminence, in all things. Now, I just want you to notice this here. If you have a highlighter or you have a little, uh, you like to, 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 to write at all in your Bibles, go through the next couple verses and highlight every verse, every word, all. All. Will you notice it with me? Not only in verse 16 were all things created by, uh, all things were created by him and before him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Why? That in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Do you know what I call this? It is the all-encompassing Christ. It is Paul's idea that he's teaching here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is above and in and through everything, and everything is for him. Now, we just need to embrace that. If we're going to understand what it means to be risen with Christ, we have to know who Christ is, the reality of an all-encompassing Christ who is before all things and for whom everything, everything is and continues. So that's the reality Paul is saying. That's what he's driving at here. He wants to show these Colossian brothers and sisters, you don't need to turn any, to anything else. You have Christ and you are complete in him. But now secondly, I want to talk about the unity, the reality. Who is Jesus? He's the all-encompassing one. The unity that we have with Christ. And this starts very interestingly in verse 27. Will you notice in chapter 1 in verse 27, Paul, speaking of his saints, God's saints, says, to whom, to those saints, 
God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now, what is this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, friends, I think you knew when you came here tonight that Christ dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. I hope you knew that tonight. It is what Paul means when he says in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth. Where? In me. Christ lives in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Now that should be a glorious enough thought for us. That the one in whom the entire fullness of the Godhead is bodily within him lives in you. Can you comprehend that? Can you comprehend that the one who created everything condescends to dwell in you? That the one who is literally holding the entire universe together by the force of his own power today lives in you with all your sin and all my weakness and the amount of my failings and how often I fall and stumble and how often I think wrong. That one, the preeminent all-encompassing Christ lives in you. That should be enough to blow our minds. But I want you to see in Colossians 2, Paul is going to take it a step further. Not only is Christ in us, but we are with, we are inextricably united with him. Let's just start for just a moment here in verse number 12. Paul says of chapter 2 in verse 12 that we are buried with him, with him. We are buried with him. In baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now notice what he's saying there. He is saying, you are dead with Christ. You are buried with Christ. You are raised to life. You are risen with Christ. And he tells us how that happens. Now, don't get confused when he says we are buried with him by baptism. He does not mean that going down into those baptismal waters ensures that you are united with Christ. No. How do we know that? Because look at what he goes on to say. Wherein also ye are risen with him through what? Through the faith of the operation of God. What unites you with Christ? Is it your good works? No. Is it your religious sacraments? Your religious ordinances, Lord's Supper, baptism? No. It is through faith. It is your faith connecting to the power of God in Christ that allows this real unity, this inextricable linking that you are with Christ in his death, that you are with Christ in his burial, that you are with Christ in his resurrection. Now, Paul is getting at the same idea in Colossians 3 when he says, for you are dead. Like right now, you are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, you just need to break that down. You're, you are hid. Let's say it's not you anymore. You're behind the scenes. 
You're, if you'll pardon the phrase, you're in the closet. No one's seeing you. You're hid with Christ, that's your unity, in God, our Father, the one who ultimately is above all. Now, what, what are we saying here? We are saying that you and I need to understand that the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, something miraculous spiritually happened. What was miraculous spiritually, that in that spiritual way, you literally died with Jesus. You, as Paul says, we have been crucified with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. Not only did you die with him on that cross, you say, why does it matter that I died with him? Because your sins needed to be paid for. You died with him. His sacrifice was on your behalf. It was in your place. You were, as it were, hanging on that cross with him. He died for you. You were crucified with him. You were buried with him. You literally were, if you will, underground. The picture of baptism, Paul says in Romans 6, is the picture that we die with Christ and we're buried. Our old man is gone. He's six feet underground in the spiritual realm, the true you. He's buried. And then what? You rise with him. You actually rose with him. Notice what Paul says here in, in verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. Now, quickened together means brought to life. You came alive. You were risen with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, which was against us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Friends, what do you get when you are united with Christ? The first thing you get is a clean slate. Do you feel that tonight? That because you have been united with Christ, you have a perfectly clean slate with God? Perfectly clean. I want you to think about that. I want you to imagine that cross that Jesus hung on and died. What was the ordinance? What was the law that was written above his head that he was accused? That was his indictment. What did it say? Jesus, King of the Jews. Do you know what Colossians 2 is telling you? From God's perspective, there was another indictment nailed to the top of that cross as Jesus hung there naked and ashamed and brutalized by men. The ordinance that was nailed to the top of that cross was every sin that you have committed. It was nailed there. He was dying on your behalf, on my behalf. Again, can you just even fathom that picture? That every sin that you have ever committed, past, present, and future, in God's sight, was nailed up to that cross. And you say, you want to know what my son is guilty of? This. Your sin. My sin. He nailed it to his cross. What an absolutely staggering thought 
Now, not only does he say that those handwriting, that, those, that indictment that against you has been blotted out, it's a completely clean slate. He says not only that, Jesus in verse 15 has spoiled principalities and powers. He, not only that, he made a show of them openly. The idea is he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You say, what does this mean? Well, again, we don't do this very much today. But you need to understand the ancient victory parade. In Paul's day and before that, when a conquering general would come home, he, he would come home with the spoils of victory behind him. And th those that would be coming behind him would be his captives, the ones that he had defeated. And you can just imagine the spectacle of a Roman general walking in to a great victory procession, a parade that was thrown in that honor, proudly coming in in his chariot with the beautiful battle horses, and behind him coming all the defeated forces now captive. They maybe would be hardly, scarcely clothed. They would be in chains. They would be looking defeated. They had been taken from their homeland. They looked absolutely crushed. And what did that show? It was to the glory of the Roman victor, to the Roman general. He is making a public humiliation of these ones whom he has defeated. And now, Paul says, you want to know what Jesus did when he rose? He made a public spectacle of all those powers and principalities who were opposed against him. Now, friend, can you even again comprehend this? In the crucifixion, who was the public spectacle? Who was the public spectacle? The guy hanging naked on a cross. The guy with the crown of thorns on his head. The guy with a spear going into his side. The guy with the religious elite saying, ha ha, he saved others, he can't save himself. If you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross. He was the public spectacle. It was your sins that were nailed to that cross. And then what happened? The tables were turned. And the conquering general, Jesus the king, emerged victorious. And in the train behind him, was the public spectacle of those forces that he had defeated. Friends, what does it mean for you to be risen with that Christ? It means not only that you have a clean slate, but you are on the side of the conquering hero, the one who has absolutely humiliated the bad guys, the ones who are the demonic powers. But now notice also what he tells you then in verse 16. He said, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. This is a whole other sermon, but I'll just say this. The, the, the third thing that you receive when you're risen with Christ, united with him, is not only sharing in that clean slate, not only uh, being united to that conquering hero, but having a clear mandate. Here's what Paul is saying. If you're risen with Christ above all these things and systems that Jesus came to defeat, why would you put yourself under them? No, it would literally be like this. The picture here is you're walking up with the Roman general. 
You're one of the Roman soldiers coming back triumphant. You're, you're participating in the glory of the conquering hero. And one of you walks to the back and says, you know what, I like chains a little better. I'd rather hang out with these guys in the back and have a good time. Can I strip down? Can I put the shackles on my hands and my feet and be under bondage? Paul's saying, what? Don't let anyone judge you in respect of these things that have passed away, that you have died to, that you're no longer held by. You're with Christ, buddy. You're risen with him. What are you doing holding on to the old Jewish stuff, to the old legalistic impulses? Don't do that. You see, that's the picture. To be united with Christ means that you're free. You're not free from submitting to God's will, but you're free from all the man-made religion and all the kinds of legalism that have plagued virtually every le uh, religious system leading up to this day. You don't play by those rules because you're risen with Christ. You died with him, you were buried with him, and now you're risen with the all-encompassing one for whom everything has been made. That's what Paul's saying here. The reality is who Jesus is. The unity is that you're with that guy. His destiny is your destiny. His power is your power. His forgiveness, if you will, has been granted to you. His position is your position. Why? Because you're hid with Christ in God. You're with him. It's amazing. But third, we need to talk not only about the reality, not only about the unity, but finally, what I'm going to call the identity. The identity. What does this mean for us? Notice what Paul says, if ye then be risen with Christ. Now, the idea here is not, a, is not like it's a, a question. Oh, really? Are you risen with Christ? Not sure. No. The idea is, well, since you've been risen with Christ, since it's true, if you truly have been risen with Christ, then what? Then seek those things which are above. But we can't start there in knowing what our identity is. Again, think back to those multi-million dollar basketball players who for years their identity had been themselves and their own profit and their own superstardom and being catered to on every team that they had played to, going back to the time they were a little kid. What they needed to see was that their identity was different, that they were part of something completely bigger than the name on the back of their jersey. Their identity had to change, who they saw themselves to be. And the reality, Paul is saying here, is that you and I need to have the same shift. Our identity, our recognition of who we are in Christ needs to shift. And I want you to start by looking at verse number 20. Because you're not going to fully understand being risen with Christ if you don't understand how Paul connects it to being dead with Christ. Now, can I just say this? Be careful about chapter divides. Don't just start reading Colossians 3 verse 1 and saying, oh, I can pick it up here. No, you can't. You really need to pick it up in verse 20 of chapter 2. Why? Because notice what he says. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ, you're dead with Christ. 
Okay, then he says, if you be risen with Christ. You see, those things go together. If you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. What are the rudiments of the world? The idea here are the ABCs. Like the first kind of ideas of our world system. The basic cultural building blocks of our world. The, the basic kinds of instruction that our world sees. He says, you're free from that. You're free from man-made thinking, from man-made theories, from the kind of elemental uh, uh, teachings of this world. If you're free or if you're dead from the rudiments of the world, he says, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, these rules, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. You say, what's going on? Here's, here's what Paul's saying. Friends, if you're dead with Christ, from all that, from every kind of man-made religion, you don't need to submit yourself to it again, to all those other rules. Now, let me pause for just a minute before we get off track. I know there's some, some things that are easy to catch our attention around here right now. I see your eyes, folks. Don't worry. I know exactly where you're looking. What's he saying? Well, what he's saying is this. What is characteristic of every religious system, every kind of religious system that tries to, to, to earn its way toward God, do you know what we do? We put in place these kinds of rules, this kind of box-checking exercise, that will tell us how we're doing. It's true of every kind of false system that we implement rather than recognizing our identity as being risen with Christ, as being dead with Christ, buried with him, risen with him. We substitute these things like touch not, taste not, handle not. We deal with things. He says all these things are going to perish with the using. What does that mean? He's talking about food. He's talking about things that you do, like you consume a day with your time. He's been talking about these kinds of things. And he's saying, why are you giving yourself back to these kind of temporary man-made philosophies of check this box and do that and do this? All these things, he says. Notice what he says in verse 23. Which things have indeed a show of worship in will, sorry, of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body? not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Here's what he's saying. This kind of legalism looks good. It has an appearance of wisdom, but do you know what it's not going to do? It's not going to curb your fleshly desires at all. In fact, if anything, it will only make them worse. You say, what do you mean by that? What is at the heart of our fleshly desire? Pride. Pride. It is the carnal eye. There's an old Patch the Pirate uh, uh, episode that we've listened to with our kids. You maybe remember it. King Me First. Remember King Me First? Some of you could probably sing the King Me First song, even still tonight after how many years? King Me First. That's at the root of what our flesh is, at what our carnal desires is. And do you know what this kind of man-centered legalism is about. It is about checking all the boxes, checking all the rules, so why? So I can be elevated. And it just feeds my pride. It feeds my own carnality instead of pushing us away from it, instead of really transforming us into the likeness of Christ. So notice here, 
What he's saying is your first identity of being risen with Christ connects back to you being dead with Christ. Your spiritual life is not rooted around the things that you can touch and taste and handle. What's your spiritual life rooted in? As Paul says elsewhere, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. But what is it? What is it? The righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. That's what your Christian life is about. It is about your identity of being risen with Christ. Now let's turn over the chapter divide and look what he says in in verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. Are you risen with Christ? Now notice where he goes. Seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And friends, what we're going to look at this week, we're going to look at the fact that all of these different commands that we're going to come across flow from knowing that your identity in Christ is being risen with him that you are set with him right now in the heavenly places at the right hand of God himself. Your perspective needs to change. The recognition of your power that you have in Christ, that you can, as he says, mortify your members which are upon the earth. It's rooted in you being risen with Christ. Your position as it relates to other people is rooted in you being risen with Christ. He says, in this world, in Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no circumcision or uncircumcision, there is no barbarian, there's no no, uh, uh, Scythian, there's no bond, there's no free, but Christ is all and in all. And my encouragement to you this week as you prepare for our time together at Camp Shatek, or for those of you who aren't able to make it, Go through those verses together of what your commands are, of what your desire, what God's desire for you is, and tie it back to this. How does this relate to me being risen with Christ? How does this tie into the fact that the all-encompassing one is in me and forever I am united with him? How does this tie into the fact that I am dead, not only to sin, but to all of the man-made systems of religion that say, don't touch this, don't taste this, don't handle this. No, you're on a different plane. How does it relate to the fact that you are risen with Christ in that you are hid with him in God? What does that mean? I'm not going to give you the answers tonight, but we're going to go through this week and study them together and try to understand in a fuller way how your spiritual life can be transformed by being, by recognizing your identity in Christ. I remember my father telling me a story when he was growing up, or uh, about him growing up. It was a difficult period of time. He had been being picked on, and he came home crying. He came home just crying. I bet you can know what his older brothers did. They pinned him down, and they told my dad, they said, Magnusons don't cry. That was kind of funny, wasn't it? Because a Magnuson was crying. And Magnusons do cry. But what were they saying to him? They were saying, your identity 
rules out certain kinds of actions and behaviors for you. You need to know who you are. And in a very simple way, Paul is saying to all of us, the Holy Spirit is saying to all of us tonight, brothers and sisters, you need to know who you are in Christ and with Christ. And when you know that, and when you dwell in that, and when you live in that this week, you're going to be able to apply these next practical commands that we're going to be studying together in a completely new way. Let's pray all together tonight that God will allow us to take this fundamental truth about our identity in Christ, to believe it, and then to see our behavior change as a result of it.